Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Steadman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day folks and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. What manner of shenanigans and tomfoolery are we getting ourselves into this time? Well, Chris, I don't know about the hijinks and the hilarity, but we're getting pretty close to the end of this chapter, and we have an interesting assortment of statements found at the end of the text as we begin to wrap up the story of the Garden of Eden. This week, we're looking at Genesis 3, verse 20, and we'll be talking about the man naming his wife Eve. So I'll just read this quickly. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And that seems like a pretty uh, straightforward verse. Yeah, unlike last time when we talked about that phrase, by the sweat of your brow, uh, we don't find any unusual translation choices here. Okay, but uh, I do wonder why this verse is is even here. I mean, you could remove that verse and read the chapter. You wouldn't really feel like you were missing out on anything. Yeah, and, and that has created no small amount of discussion in academic circles, particularly from text critics who want to say that it doesn't belong, there, uh, that it was imported from some other place in the text, that this is some kind of a redaction on the part of a later scribe or something like that, maybe an editorial gloss. I, I think it's just because this comes at a junction in the text right before we get to the end of the Eden story. You know, God's finished making his pronouncements and after the debacle concerning the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which represents the power to sit in judgment. We find that the power of judgment is shown to be God's alone. We're about to get to the part where God puts in place some final things and the man and his wife are exiled. And it's like right at this point, the man suddenly steps up and starts doing what he was supposed to be doing from the start of the story. Remember back in chapter two, the man had a job to do and the job was naming things. So the man who has been passive throughout this entire story suddenly steps up and does what he's supposed to do. It's actually a bit of a surprise. All this time we've been told very little about what the man's actually done. He sat there and named the animals while God was watching him do that. Then God has to give him this special revelation of the importance of the woman because he doesn't get it. So we have that deep sleep and the weird dream sequence where the man gets chopped in half. And then he realizes that the woman is the other half and all that. But then the record goes silent on what Adam is actually doing. From that point on, we don't have him passing on the instruction of God to his wife. The best we can do is maybe imply that, but we don't have it explicitly. When the serpent comes, Adam says nothing. When the woman talks to the serpent, Adam says nothing. When she takes the fruit, Adam says nothing. When she eats the fruit, Adam does nothing. When she offers the fruit to him, he accepts. And when God comes asking questions, 
he runs. When he needs to speak, he doesn't. And when he needs to act, he does the opposite. So the man has exhibited an embarrassing display, an embarrassing display of passivity and cowardice instead of doing what was right. And it's especially bad when we notice that he only does the right thing when God is watching him. When God watched to see what he would name the animals, he was doing the job. When God was out of the picture and the serpent was present, the man lost all his backbone and just let everything play out, even though he knew better. Yeah, that reminds me of that old um, quote, you know, they say your character is who you are when nobody's watching. Yeah, that's right. And his character is certainly on display here. He was told to go and take dominion and instead he went and got popcorn. God comes back on the scene, gives him all a good telling off and suddenly he wants to start doing the job again. It's like, Dad's coming, quick, look busy. Only he's uh, too late for that. Yeah, maybe it's more like, see, Dad, I can do the right thing. You don't have to punish me now, I'm doing it, look. But he's probably too late for that too. And you really have to ask, is this what God is looking for? Does God want a leader who only leads when God is there personally leading him? Where's the courage to act when it doesn't feel like God's right there? And that's going to be a repeating pattern that we'll find throughout Scripture, which appears like a set of concentric circles. A little Zen moment here. Imagine a stone dropping in a puddle. And, uh, and this one's right in the centre. This is the smallest ring. God gives the man a job, turns his back for a moment, and finds the man doing something else. We're going to see it again in Genesis 6 and again in Genesis 11. Then we're going to see it play out in the life of God's people again and again. Each time, God seems a bit further away and takes a bit longer before he comes back. Jesus talks about this as well. This is the end of Matthew 24, reading from verse 44. Jesus said, this is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says in his heart, my master is delayed and starts to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, that servant's master will come on a day that he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you might say, well, Adam doesn't seem that bad. He's not getting drunk and beating people and all those kind of things like in this parable Jesus tells. But we can't really say that because we don't know his motivation for sitting there silently while he let his wife take the forbidden fruit. Was he waiting to see if she would die so that he would have the power over everything without having to share it? I mean, God did tell him that in the day that he ate of it, he would die. But yeah, we don't know. Even if that were the case, it's not much of a power move on his part. If anything, it makes him more like the serpent. That's not the obedient leadership that God was looking for from him. In the end, the man's always going to be shown up as weak and feckless. There's a word for you, feckless. And missing the point, he fails to speak up. He fails to show up. He doesn't model the right behaviours. He doesn't intervene. He doesn't take responsibility. And when the light finally turns on and he realises that he's about to be in serious trouble, it's too little, too late. Feckless. Say it again. When the 12 tribes rejected the promised land and then changed their minds to try and avoid the 40 years of wandering, it was too late to prevent the death of the faithless generation. 
When Israel finally got a righteous king after decades of chaos and disorder, it was not enough to prevent the exile. When the Pharisees came out to get baptised in the Jordan, it was too late to present themselves clean before the Messiah. And it may be too little too late, but that doesn't mean that this last minute repentance is without value. The man has restored correct order and function in the marriage by assuming his place as the one with the chief responsibility over his wife. He's also correctly identified that she has a particular role owing to her nature as a woman. This is a significant change from the earlier situation in which he was given the task of naming all the creatures that God brought to the man, and the best he could do was classify the woman as being the same species as him. So the man has finally acknowledged the special role and function of women in the community, and in particular, he's acknowledged this one with her own name that belongs to her as an individual and honours her as the one who has made the future of the man possible through physical descendants. So when you say the future of the man, are you talking about the man or the children of the man? Yes. Okay, good. In ancient culture, you had only one hope of living beyond your years, and that was through your children. You needed to have children so they would perpetuate the work you had done and they would maintain the land on which you lived and they would honour you to keep your memory alive. And this came with various things that people would do, such as collecting the bones of the ancestors and preserving them and that kind of thing. So if you didn't have kids, then your death was final. But if your wife bore children, then you continued living through their remembrance of you. When the man calls his wife mother of all the living, he does so in hope that he will continue to live beyond his years through the promise of offspring. We've got to resist the temptation to Christianize this verse and inject Jesus into it and act like this is all about the resurrection and all that kind of stuff. That thing might have been popular for the church fathers, but it really is terrible exegesis. We've got to be okay with pre-Christian people doing pre-Christian things, and that means letting them exist in their culture without decrying it as some kind of abhorrent practice. So what do you mean by that exactly? Well, what that means is we can't have the same expectations of pre-Christians as we would of those who lived after the time of Christ. The man who is about to get booted out of the Garden of Eden does not know anything about Jesus Christ or the forgiveness of sins. As far as he's concerned, either he has children who will preserve all that he's established in his life, or he dies childless and everything dies with him. There is no concept of eternal life or a destiny any different to that of every other person who has died and been buried in the dust. The tree of life is gone, and as far as he knows, he will never see it again. But if he can have children before he returns to the dust, then perhaps all is not lost. After all, in the ancient Near East, you're not really a king without an heir to the throne. But hang on a minute. You're saying that he is naming his wife Eve because he's thinking about his own future as a king rather than the possibility of redemption and reconciliation with God? Yep. So then what about all that stuff about giving Eve her correct honour, respecting her as a woman, all that? Well, yeah, well, what about that? Well, a minute ago, it looked like the man was, you know, finally getting his act together, doing the right thing. But now that you said that, I kind of feel like the whole thing was just a setup, and the man wasn't really being sincere this whole time. Oh, you think so? Well, <laughs> we, we spent all this time way back at the start of the season talking about how humans are inherently selfish. We've just been talking about how this man doesn't lift a finger unless there's an imminent threat to his own backside. He didn't care about Eve when she was being deceived by the serpent. He didn't care about Eve when she did the wrong thing. 
He threw her under the bus when God came asking questions. And now that it's time for the sentence to be carried out, he's looking to her to cement his legacy. He's not a good man. But that shouldn't surprise us. We talked before about how he represents all of us. And in fact, we've also had discussions about how Adam, the man of dust, is represented in Jacob, the usurper, who becomes Israel, the man who wrestles with God. We made that connection between Israel and the nations through the seed of Abraham, which showed that all the dust of the earth, every individual human, wrestles with God. Isaiah 53, 6, we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. So what am I saying here? Is this just a push toward the reformed concept of total depravity or the inability of man to move toward God? No, I'm just saying that it's our natural inclination to be self-centered. And that's what we're seeing here. The man demonstrated a capability to do the right thing as per God's instruction, but we're still left in doubt as to the state of his heart. And it's not clear at all that he had healthy motivations behind his eventual jump into action. Likewise, the law provided for Israel the means to do what was right, and there are many examples provided in Scripture that showed it was possible. Don't buy this argument from people who say the law was an impossible task designed to set us up to fail. That isn't true. But the question came to be one of heart motivation rather than muscle memory. Where's Adam's heart? What about our own? Do we do it because it's right or because it's beneficial? Are we just doing good while people are watching? Are we waiting for opportunities to serve ourselves as soon as we're left unsupervised? I think the message here is that we're supposed to rise above our base instincts and survival mechanisms and we're supposed to reach out beyond ourselves to achieve something that benefits others. That's what God does, and that's why we say that God is love. At the end of the day, it's only love if it's not about you. Yeah, absolutely. Very true. Well, just a short study today, but a good one as always. Uh, now it's time to get into a question that was submitted by a friend of ours. So let's have a Giant Answers Q&A segment. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. So this question came from Mark and he wants to know how you can understand Joshua's long day described in the conquest of Canaan if we really do live in a heliocentric solar system? Well, that's certainly an interesting question and one that I've been wanting to tackle for some time now. There's no shortage of interesting interpretations on this one, but if we want to get anywhere, we're going to have to start with what the Bible actually says. So here's the passage from Joshua chapter 10. I'm going to read the first 15 verses. Now, King Adonai Tzedek of Jerusalem heard that Joshua had captured Ai and completely destroyed it, treating Ai and its king as he had Jericho and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were living among them. So Adonai Tzedek and his people were greatly alarmed because Gibeon was a large city like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its people were warriors. Therefore, King Adonitzedek of Jerusalem sent word to King Hoham of Hebron, King Piram of Jarmuth, King Japhia of Lachish, and King Debir of Eglon, saying, Come up and help me. We will attack Gibeon because they have made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. So the five Amorite kings, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces, advanced with all their armies, 
besieged Gibeon and fought against it. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Don't give up on your servants. Come quickly and save us. Help us, for all the Amorite kings living in the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua and all his troops, including all his best soldiers, came from Gilgal. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for I have handed them over to you. Not one of them will be able to stand against you. So Joshua caught them by surprise after marching all night from Gilgal. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. He defeated them in a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them through the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekar and Machadah. As they fled before Israel, the Lord threw large hailstones on them from the sky along the descent of Beth Horon all the way to Azekar, and they died. More of them died from the hail than the Israelites killed with the sword. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the presence of Israel. Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon over the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Isn't this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed its setting almost a full day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a man, because the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. All right, so having read the passage, if we go back to the premise of the question, what we're trying to figure out is how this passage makes sense if the earth revolves around the sun. And I guess on the face of it, you could effectively reword the question and ask, why didn't Joshua ask the earth to stand still? I mean, since we know that the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around, I guess the question could be worded that way. But I think what's going on here is a situation where the assumption is that it must be the sun that's moving if the author of this passage talks about it standing still or going down or whatever. And I mean, obviously, the sun still goes up and down today, right? Because people still say that, so it must be true. Okay, sarcasm aside, what should be quite obvious is that ancient people, just like modern people, still speak about things in terms of the experience from their own perspective. I can say that the sun is going up or coming down because I'm talking to people who are viewing that event from the same perspective as me. I can talk about the stability of the earth and how it doesn't seem to move because I'm not a finely tuned scientific instrument floating out in space designed to observe things objectively and report things without bias. I'm an ordinary human and I'm going to describe things according to how I perceive them. I'm going to talk about things with regard to how they influence me and my perspective. My view of the world is not the view from nowhere. It's very subjective. It's based on my experience. When a person tells you that the time is 8 o'clock, they don't mean that it's 8 o'clock everywhere. What they mean is it's 8 o'clock where they are. It's relative. This is something I have to deal with a lot when I deal with people overseas because I'm in Australia and the time differences can be huge. It's funny how not being at the centre of control and experience can really bring some perspective on this. Anyway, my first point is that it's natural for people to write things down from the point of view of their own perspective. So, of course, people are going to talk about sunrises and sunsets and things like that. And unless we're actually planning to challenge the knowledge of the day regarding the movements of the objects in the solar system, it doesn't really matter what ancient people actually knew about them on a scientific level. People say these things because that's how people talk. This is ordinary communication. And people don't speak differently just because it's the Bible or something. And that brings me to my second point, which is literary concerns. And the obvious question we need to ask ourselves is why a dedicated astronomer and scientific cosmologist such as Joshua 
would be writing such mundane things as military journal entries when he should be clearly sticking to the astronomical sciences. Okay, you caught me again, I was being sarcastic. Joshua is clearly a military leader, and while I have no doubt that he was an educated man, I don't think anybody would be reasonably convinced by any argument that proposed to paint him as some kind of an authority on astronomy. Now, pointing that out might seem a little harsh, like I'm casting doubt on the idea that God could have given Joshua that information supernaturally or something. Uh, and yes, I am casting doubt on the idea that God would somehow supernaturally impart some kind of new cosmological understanding to Joshua, which turns out to be completely wrong anyway, but since he manages to get it written down in the Bible, we have to take it as inspired, right? Well, no, we don't, because that's not how inspiration works. God never tells people things that don't align with the cultural understanding of the day in order to get some kind of scientific correctness. This is the ancient world, for goodness sake. Ancient people are going to write like ancient people do. There's a verse in the Psalms where the author seems to think that snails actually melt because they leave that slimy residue behind wherever they go, so they must be melting. Can you imagine actually thinking that? Like, where was God when the psalmist wrote that? Like, God comes back from the toilet and says to David, hey, what did you write while I was gone? And David says, oh, just this bit about melting snails. And God's like, no, don't write that. That's wrong. It's scientifically wrong. I was supposed to tell you about that, but you've gone and written it now anyway, so I guess we have to keep it in there. Like, really? We need to remember it as well as that our own scientific understanding is only correct for now until something else is discovered that will refine our understanding. So God isn't going to inspire his authors to write things that make sense to a certain group of people in the future, because at every other point in time, that science would appear to be wrong. Maybe snails are melting. Maybe. <laughs> when you think about it from that point of view, the whole premise of this question, it's a bit misguided because it began with the understanding that there is some cosmological model that's either true or false and that a correct interpretation of the passage relies on having the correct view of the right model. So getting back to literary issues around this text, we have to ask, is the text making any kind of affirmation of a scientific nature concerning the operation of the cosmos? And the answer to that is no. Okay, so how about this question? Here we go again. Is the text making any kind of affirmation of a theological nature concerning the operation the cosmos well i would say yes it absolutely is and we can prove that by going back to the text and examining the language in use okay so we were in joshua 10 uh looking at verse 10 the lord threw them into confusion before israel in verse 11 the lord threw large hailstones on them from the sky in verse 12 on the day the lord gave the amorites over to the israelites joshua spoke to the lord in the presence of Israel, sun stands still over Gibeon and moon over the valley of Ajalon. Verse 13, and the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Isn't this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed its setting almost a full day. Verse 14, there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a man because the Lord fought for Israel. Now, probably the biggest question that we might have regarding this text is in verse 12, where it says that Joshua spoke to the Lord, and when he spoke to the Lord, he told the sun and the moon to stand still. Yeah, so what does that mean? Did Joshua think that the sun was God or something like that? Well, something that we notice here in the text is that the sun and the moon don't get credit for anything except for doing what they were told. There's no indication from the text that this is just some kind of coincidence 
as if to say that it was always going to happen right at the time when Joshua spoke. Like it was just coincidentally lined up for some great cosmic cataclysm out there in the universe that just happened to line up perfectly with Joshua's desire to win this battle. And I have to say that because there are theories as absurd as a near-Earth pass by the planet Mars, no less, to explain this passage of Scripture. As usual, we'll find that a bit more context applied to the story is going to illuminate what's going on here. Do you remember that bit back in Joshua chapter 5 when Joshua meets this man with a sword in his hand? And Joshua says, are you for us or for our enemies? And he says, no, I am the commander of the Lord's host. What does he say next? He says, take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. You know what he doesn't say? What he does not say is, hey, this is holy ground. Get off my lawn. Joshua has to take his sandals off because he's wearing something man-made and standing in sacred space. But he's quite welcome to be there. And if we cast our minds back to what we've been reading in Genesis 2 and 3, you remember that there was a time when mankind was welcome in the presence of God and walked, without man-made clothing, on the same ground where God was. So when God allows a person to dwell in his own personal space like this, that can mean only one thing. That person has been granted access to participate in what God is doing. That's participation in God's divine counsel. Remember that the book of Joshua started with the affirmation that Joshua was the person chosen as the successor to Moses. And Moses had had a similar encounter himself more than once. Remember the burning bush thing? And then there was that whole Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai and all of that. So if we consider this encounter that Joshua has with the angel of the Lord as his welcome into the divine council, then what we see is that he becomes a participant in working out the purposes of God for his people personally. And that means that the things that Joshua says actually carry some weight in what happens among the gods themselves. When we keep this in mind and we come back to Joshua 10 and look at the language employed in the Hebrew text, what we find is that Joshua speaks and when he speaks to the Lord, he is addressing the counsel of the gods. He can do that because his God is Yahweh the Most High, the ruler over the entire council. And these celestial bodies that are referred to in the text actually have names. Following correct protocol, Joshua doesn't speak to them, but he speaks to the Lord and tells these celestial bodies what he wants. That's why the text tells us that Joshua spoke to the Lord. But when he does so, he tells the sun and the moon what to do. Their names, according to the text, are Shemesh and Yarik, the names of the deities that were worshipped by the Amorites. And you'll notice specific reference to the tribes that were aligned against Israel as Amorites, not as Canaanites or Anakim or some other kind of designation. They're called Amorites because that is a designation of their religious position. Being an Amorite is not a question of ethnicity. But that's not the only interesting feature of the text. Another thing to notice is that Joshua doesn't actually tell them to stand still. In Hebrew, what he says is be quiet. That's the Hebrew damam. Not stand still, which would be ta'amodu an example that actually comes from Joshua in Joshua 3.8. So you can see that used there. You can see the difference. And it's not often that you find something in the Bible referring to silence in heaven. But if this reminds you of that scene in Revelation where it says that there was silence in heaven for half an hour, then you're on the right track. 
Actually, there's one part of the text where we have something like standing still, and that is the part where it says that the moon stopped. In Hebrew, the term translated as stopped is amad, which means to stand. You most often find this used in a context of somebody standing before a superior, in service to them or in subjection to them, and in particular in legal settings where a person stands before a judge. It also uses the same terminology about the sun in that part where the translation says, so the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed its setting almost a full day. And that sentence is interesting because what it says when we translate the Hebrew more directly is that Shemesh, that is the sun god, according to the Amorites, stopped in the middle of the heavens and made no haste to leave all day. There's nothing in the translation about going down. There's nothing in the translation about the day actually being any longer than a normal day. What it does tell us is that the God known as Shemesh stood before Yahweh in the midst of the heavens in submission to him for the whole day without making any attempt to leave. This is the sovereignty and supremacy of the most high God on clear display over the gods of the Amorites. Just a little note on that, you know, in ancient culture, the superior person gets to sit down and the subordinate has to stand up in front of him. And that's how you showed respect. Right. So we see that in this picture here. So we have Joshua welcome in the presence of the Lord. We have the Amorite gods told to be quiet, which they effectively do. And we have the Lord getting the credit for the outcome of the battle. All of this points to a divine council session rather than a description of planetary alignments. And we've talked about these divine council sessions before. The members of the council say their piece, that's Joshua in this case, and God gets the glory for the outcome in the end. That's what happens in the book of Job. That's what happens in 1 Kings chapter 22. And there are other examples. So the point of all of this is to make it clear that there are other ways to read the passage besides insisting on some kind of cosmological model that requires the sun and the moon to be aligned in a certain way in the sky. You certainly don't need to have the entire planet of Mars blocking out the sky, causing meteor showers and magnetic pole reversals, as some people have proposed. You certainly don't need to act like the sun and the moon couldn't possibly be visible at the same time during the day unless the Earth was flat, especially because experientially we see this every day. So one, that's not exactly a miracle. And two, it doesn't mean anything at all about the shape of the Earth. And three, that contributes exactly nothing of value to the text in terms of information useful to the first audience. What I'm saying is that pretty much any reading of this text that requires literalism with regard to the celestial bodies being referred to totally misses the point and misses the fact that this is a battle between the people of God and the people who worship the gods represented by the sun and the moon. But if God wanted to leave the earth and the sun and the moon, he could do that if he wanted to, right? Oh, I have no doubt that God could do that if he wanted to. But in light of the evidence that points to a theological interpretation of the text, I'm not convinced that we need to be trying to insert elements of a worldview that simply didn't exist at the time, just so that we can take an English translation of an ancient Hebrew theological text, literally, and backing up that interpretation with the old get-out-of-jail-free card that says, but God could do that if he wanted to, doesn't really lend any credibility to the argument, because at the end of the day, you end up having to answer the questions of, why would God want to do that? Or... What makes us think that God would need to do that? Or doesn't that action create a whole bunch of other problems that need to be solved now? And, and at the end of the day, the person who proposes this kind of approach to the text 
isn't going to give a logical answer to any of those questions because they didn't start with a logical premise. So the whole thing ends up being an exercise in absurdity. So getting back to the question, does Joshua's long day have anything to do with any particular model of the shape of the world or the way that it works? I think we can fairly confidently say that there's just nothing in the text that requires one view or another. And it's just as well because it turns out to be completely irrelevant to the message of the text anyway. You can't support a flat earth or a round earth or a geocentric model or a heliocentric model based on this text. But the point of reading the Bible is to find out what God is trying to tell us and not to try and support what we want to tell other people. Yeah, and that's why we need to spend our time reading what is in the text instead of what isn't there. That is exactly right, my brother. Couldn't have put that better myself. And, uh, yeah, I think we just about wrapped that one up. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for sending in that great question. As always, we encourage our listeners to keep those questions coming via the website, which is giantanswers.com, or through various socials, or you can send us an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. That's all for this week. Thanks for your support and questions, as always. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. All right. See you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help, but a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon, paperback, and Google Check out the other podcasts at ravencreekscc.com, giantanswers.com. Read the blog and have some socials, don't forget to subscribe to the Rant Club Show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Um, how did you find the movie? Oh, man. Be honest. Oh, look, you know, um, me watching Marvel movies about ancient gods, you know, I'm in my element anyway. Um, well, it was certainly better than Eternals, let's say that for a start. Yes, uh, not not by much, but yes. It, it was, was it was um funny, probably a bit too irreverent for my liking. Agreed. And that's um, what I didn't like about it. Yeah. Um you know, like screaming goats are kind of funny once. Yeah, it was it was a bit overdone in that sense, but I'll tell you what, you couldn't have imagined how excited I was. When, when Zeus turns up and he actually calls that meeting of the gods uh, yeah. his council. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Fair. my goodness, this is awesome. Um, 
And yeah, so that was really interesting and so much commentary there about how people interact with gods and what they expect of them and mm. that kind of thing. I thought the character of um, Gore the God Butcher was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and yeah, how he interacted with all the characters and kind of played on their doubts and fears and that sort of thing. Made the mistake of, um, well, you know, the kids had a great time. They loved it, but I had no idea there was going to be so much uh, swearing. And, um, yeah, so we, we took all the kids because um, they've been sitting around for the whole school holidays being sick and yeah. finally had a day when people felt okay enough to come outside. So we were like, let's go to the movies. Then we put them in a movie where there's uh, four-letter words getting dropped every five minutes. So I was like, yeah. uh, why? And that's not very Marvel-like. No. <laughs> uh, two, really didn't contribute to the film. No. <laughs> that was another criticism I had. You know, I, I still really enjoyed it. I probably will watch it again. Uh, I'm interested to know what you thought because you actually read comics and I don't. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, bitterly disappointed. I mean, uh, just by this whole last phase of films, really. It's not Shang-Chi, Eternals, Doctor Strange. Now, it's not really building towards anything. It's, no, you know, it's not like Thanos and all the films are... This just feels like they're all over the place. Um, there's no sense of excitement or anticipation anymore, um, but still, still go watch them. But yeah, I just felt it was, I mean, um, it was far too short, two hours. You know, Gore the God Butcher and then uh, Jane Foster. And, I mean, that's a lot to fit in two hours. Um, the comics told the same story, pretty similarly, without all the foolishness. Over like two, three years, so to do it in two hours, it just seemed like too much. And like, yeah, right. you know, like just the gore thing. Like one scene, he's like worshiping. The next scene, he's killing. And then James cancer. We don't really hear much about that, or you know. So it's uh, and then you know she's making quips the next scene, and yeah, it just seemed um, someone needs to have Ray and Tyke or TD in. It's gone too far now, like with all the humor. I think he's yeah having too much of a good time to realise that um, some people sort of have a, a bit of um, gravitas to this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, he, he had a better balance with Ragnarok. But, you know, Thor's a character. He's his whole dad's dead, his mum's dead, his brother's betrayed him and dead, his friends are dead. You know, his whole 80% of his planet is wiped, you know, and he's still quipping and laughing and, you know, yeah, it's just... There's no weight, there's no repercussions in the guardians of the galaxy. I hardly, you know, I didn't see the point of them being in that at all. Uh, I don't know, it just seems very disjointed. Like, hmm. I won't be yeah. watching it again. Yeah, I thought there were a, a number of elements that didn't necessarily contribute much. Um, and yeah, you're right, the guardians of the galaxy being in it uh, amounted to. Nothing. Um, yeah. I mean, part of me thought, oh, well, they've been introduced at the start. Maybe they'll turn up at the end. Yeah. No. Yeah. I just, there was a lot, of, a lot of stuff that was, yeah, just seemed to be there to get a laugh. Yes. I, to be honest, I, I really did expect that, though, because 
I suppose that's how I looked at Ragnarok as well. Like I thought that was, um, you know, more a comedy than anything else. Yeah, but I guess that had a bit more fun. You know, it wasn't, I mean, but you're dealing with, you know, a guy killing gods and then you're dealing with a woman who's dying of cancer. Yeah, it's sure, both of those things can be lighthearted, but um, it didn't seem to be any weight to those things. Um, yeah. Whereas Ragnarok wasn't dealing with such weighty things, so it had a bit more, you know, his old planet, you know, planet died at the end, but. You know, Ragnarok is a stranger in a strange land, you know. So, yeah, it was a bit different. But, yeah, there's, like, the romance subplot, you know. Yeah. And no. I could have done without all the homosexuality in the supporting cast as well. I'm like, no. Oh, I know. Just, did, you know, did we need that? I know. Yep. It's, it's like in every film now. Yeah. <laughs> My view of the world is not the same. Yeah, let's try that again. Yeah, I'm, I'm still really. I need to. I need to keep resting, trying to get over this stupid bronchitis, which still hasn't gone away. Still sounding very sexy and husky over here. And looking exactly the same. All right, let's get on to this before I fall asleep. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.